0: Today, 80% of businesses don't sell. To be a part of the 20% that do, and at maximum value, you'll need a successful strategy. Welcome to to the the Defenders defenders of Business Value value podcast, podcast. where we interview today's top professional advisors who help business owners create, preserve, and most importantly, transfer transfer value. value. If you want actionable tips that will increase your business value, stay tuned. The The podcast podcast starts now with your host, Ed mice my name is Ed Glenn I'm uh, the managing partner here at Indiana Business Advisors,
1: and today we're going to talk a little bit about deal killers. We'll get started with, with a couple housekeeping items. Number one, if you are unable to, to get through the, the presentation, don't worry. We'll send that out to you. In the event that there's technical difficulties, again, no problem. We will send the video and the audio. Even if we have to re-record it, we'll get it to you. Um. So today we're going to talk about deal killers, and so what we did was we compiled roughly thirteen different deal killers that we we normally run into. And this certainly is not all inclusive, but it, it, these are the most frequent frequent ones we see. Uh, I would imagine we're probably going to go for about a half hour. So if you have any questions or anything that you want to make sure that we cover, Chelsea is manning the. Chat box, so we will um, she'll get those questions over to me so why don't we get started? Our first deal killer is valuation. The interesting thing about valuation is is that it represents about forty percent of the reasons deals don't go together so when you if you think of the, the number of transactions as a pie chart. Roughly forty percent fall apart because of value. forty percent fall apart due to emotional or other reasons other than financial. And then twenty percent cause the deal to fall apart for a variety of different reasons and it can be literally just about anything and and uh, I'm, I'm I'm proud to say that we just surpassed our two thousand one hundredth transaction so we've done we've done a lot of these things and, and I can tell you we have seen an awful lot of, of weird things that happen to transactions. And maybe one day we'll, we'll, uh, we'll augment uh, one of our presentations with just kind of the weird things that, uh, that we've seen. So, so like I said, that's valuation. Now, unrealistic seller expectations. Now, the funny thing when, when we're working with sellers, um, you know, it, it, the, the sale process is an emotional process. I mean, it, we, we, we get into situations where the seller can't let go of the business. There's an identification that they have and they're unable to let go. And as a result, what normally happens is that the seller tends to have expectations from the buyer, either through terms or price or structure, that they failed to, were unable to bridge that gap and so 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 that that's part of the unrealistic expectations the other side is that the seller tends to focus only on the top line and when i say the top line what is the total value from our standpoint we're i mean it's great that you you get a five multiple i'm from from our standpoint as advocates for the deal we're looking for how much did you put in your pocket so let's let i'm not it's nice to talk about the top line but I'm more interested in what goes in the in someone's back pocket. And you'd be surprised at how many business owners that get tripped up with I need this number. Well, that's not that's not the the gross number is not the one we want to focus on. We want to focus on what goes in in someone's pocket. Our second one. And this is a tough one because you have to have a deal team. And I'll just give you the, my first example is attorneys and love attorneys, but they're at times they're challenging and challenging from the standpoint of like, we have a attorney that's a family friend of a seller, never have done any kind, he has never done any kind of transaction work whatsoever yet. He wants to represent his, his, his family friend. And there's nothing wrong with that up until the part where we need somebody that has done deals before because um reauthoring or <clears throat> trying to get up to speed on the nuances of transaction work is an entirely different animal than in this case divorce work. So we we have to work with with both accountants and attorneys that have done deals before, and and again, there and and for those of you that are going at it alone or thinking about selling your company by yourself without any kind of representation and if you need an attorney just holler at us we're you know we've got you know probably 10 15 attorneys that that are our go-to people um, that we're happy to share with you the other thing is the other advisor is is obviously from a brokerage standpoint we have a little bit of a of a uh, bias because obviously we believe that that you should never go into a transaction by yourself. I think every deal needs representation. And so we we believe that you need to vet and understand who's going to represent you in a, in the sale process. And the biggest reason we always say is number one, we have so many buyers that we're working with and and we'll talk a little bit about buyers here in a second, but when we work with Buyers, We're creating a form that is, you can't as an individual do, we have reach into the individual buyer pool, strategic buyer pool, and then private equity buyer pool. I mean, not many people can, can do that by themselves. And so not only that, but we also tend to take the emotion out of the transaction. And that's really one of the, and I alluded to that in the previous slide. That's a real challenge that, that business sellers just don't understand. So got to have a, a good attorney, good accountant, transaction um, related, as well as you need some representation to represent your deal. The next deal killer is that the seller tends to take their eye off the ball. So we, we talk a lot to our sellers that this is a long process. And when I say long process, it statistically and new statistics just came out that the average time to sell a company is roughly nine months. So you can see that there's three quarters that go through those nine months. And what happens is we see business owners that make the decision to sell. They show up at our doorstep. We're ready to sell and we, and they, and they essentially emotionally checked out. They take their foot off the gas, they don't do the things that they were doing, um, and as a result, performance decreases, and then all of a sudden they're they're turning to us saying, "Well, you know why why is the buyer renegotiating well, the, from the buyer's perspective, they're looking at the deal and saying, well maybe 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 this isn't what we thought it was, and as a result, we need to mitigate our risk, so that's what taking your eye off the ball will do so So normally, what happens is we always advise our clients operate as if we're going to be unsuccessful. That that is the safest play that you can possibly make. So that's taking your eye off the ball. There's a again, it this one is a is a tough one because it it is a long sale process, and and especially of those that that are in retire approaching retirement. I mean they they take it up to that that wall and then then they've made the decision to sell it, and it's hard to keep going once you've emotionally checked out of the business. Our next one is that the parties are not legitimate. And what does that mean? So from a buy, from the buy side, you know we we go through roughly twenty five buyers to get to one good buyer, and that one, and then from there, then that buyer gets the opportunity to see the deal. You know, they obviously they execute confidentiality agreements, pr- uh, produce uh, evidence of financial capability, but we have to burn through twenty five buyers that aren't right for the deal. So, <clears throat> w- and the reason I share that is the, those twenty four buyers, we have to. Some are per- perennial tire kickers; they just can't pull the trigger. Some just. You know, they like looking at deals. Some it's, and it's, it's funny, when we look at, at uh, some of our inbound website traffic for, on the buy side, you can see, you know, from 11 to 2 in the morning, people are sitting there surfing the internet and saying, yeah, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. I want to I go buy my own business. I want to go do my thing. And so it's, it's interesting that we see that. Um, so we run into a lot of buyers that just aren't legitimate. And at the same time, there's sellers that aren't legitimate regretfully, we have, we've, we've had a couple situations over the years where seller seller has wanted to, uh, enter into the sale process and they're not interested in sale selling. They're trying to buy time with partners their or creditors. And yeah, you know, the, there's internal issues there that are forcing, um, you know, the seller to act in that way. And, and as a result, they're they're, they're illegitimate, and, and we can't do anything with them. So, you know, obviously from a brokerage standpoint, we're, we're pretty good at, at, at sniffing that out of why is this seller selling? And is there any duress or anything like that that we have to be sensitive to? And so, for like I said, for those of you that are advisors or, or business owners, I mean, you have, though, specifically on the sell side, you have to get that in order. Okay. Our next one is corporate culture issues. This is a, a is becoming more and more prevalent. And everybody hears the word culture and, and how are people going to play together? Well, I can tell you if, if it's company buying company and there's a merger going on, statistically speaking, I saw this and it floored me that roughly 80% of mergers are failed because they can't, they can't Get the co- corporate cultures to merge financially, operationally, everything works. But, you know, one company has, uh, you know, summer hours where we, we check out at, at noon. Others, you know, it, we're grinding it out nine to five, day in and day out. And, you know, it, it just doesn't merge that way. So when the buyer is evaluating the seller's business, I mean, that's part of what they're evaluating. It's just that they, tend to, it raises a red flag if a particular business is just operating in a fashion that, that they can't see themselves being able to absorb or assimilate into, into their own business. So that's the cor- corporate cultures. This is a real good one. The improper accounting, like just accounting in general. So let's talk a little bit about that. Look, We've seen financial statements in every kind of condition imaginable. And at the end of the day, we have to be able to, it has to vet out. And when I say vet out, I'm referring to, we have to be able to survive due diligence. If not, we can't. It's useless to go to the market. So as when we're looking at deals, we're looking at, okay, here's the financials you've provided. Maybe they're internal, you know, QuickBooks or Peachtree, I guess Peachtree is no longer, but QuickBooks or any kind of internally prepared documentation, those have to reconcile. And when I say reconcile, they have to reconcile to the tax returns, because if you're going SBA financing, for example, you have to be able to, those tax returns are what everyone's basing it off, off of. So, we need our financial statements to reconcile to our tax return. Now going back the other way, we have to have our deposits to reconcile to our financial statements, our financial statements reconcile to the accounting financial statements, the compilations or reviewed financials, and then into the tax return. We have to we have to do that. Now we run into a lot of business owners that you know and, and this isn't condemnation by any means, but you know they're sheltering as much income as they can through their operating expenses, and that's fine. We just have to be able to pull it out and, and reference it. That okay? And for example, I'm I'm I was reviewing a, a company this morning. You know they've got you know twenty five thousand dollars that is auto related uh, expense for their their kids, their, his wife, and you know summer home. Uh, mobile home that is, and so they 're expensing all of that through there and th- and that 's fine, but when we go to sell, we just have to be able to pull extract that out so the buyer the buyer can see, oh, this is how much additional cash flow I have and if you remember from previous sessions, we talked about how to determine. Our adjusted cash flow. And that cash flow has to answer three easy questions How much can I pay myself or someone to run the business? How much debt can I service? And lastly, how much uh, of a return of and on my investment can I get? And uh, the accounting records all flow into that. Okay. Next, number seven, not planning enough in advance. This is a tough one. And I say that from a, from a planning standpoint. So I do a lot of presale work, and I can tell you that the people that come into our shop that are interested in kind of evaluating where they are from a value standpoint, where they are from an emotional standpoint, and especially the, the the baby boomers, what are they going to retire to? All those things we're having those conversations, and I can tell you from from our standpoint. Roughly 80% of those companies that do value work or pre-sale work and understand the advanced planning portion of the program, they have about an 80% chance of selling. Conversely, those that just show up and say, look, I'm I, I want to sell, away we go. I mean, there's probably probably, well, I don't say probably, it's it our statistics are roughly 30, 35% success ratio. So you can see that being prepared is considerably better than just all of a sudden one day I want to go sell and I want to sell for my value. The other thing that we have to consider with the planning is a lot of business owners are trying to, this is statistically speaking, roughly 60 to 90% of, of a business owner's net worth is tied up in the business. So you can imagine that the, 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 degree of importance that it is that they're able to sell the company and create that liquidity so that they can go on to the, the whatever the next step in their in their life is whether that's retirement or buying another company or just doing what they do. So what we have to consider on this is or as the seller is is doing that planning Chances are they they'll end up with their financial planner, and they're going to say to the financial planner, "You know, here's what we've been taking." Financial planner is going to say, "Well, if you want to keep that standard of living, you're going to have to sell your company for that." Well, unfortunately, there's just no correlation between the two. And the good news is that financial planners are becoming more astute. And either they're engaging us from a value standpoint, or they're they're doing they're engaging someone to get a better idea of value because. Income replacement value, and that's a fictitious term, but that's, <clears throat> that is often what we're seeing is that, look, this is how much I need to retire. And from a value standpoint, there's no correlation. The seller does not fully understand and articulate what the value is to the buyer. So there's two groups of buyers. We have our individual buyers, and we have our strategic or synergistic type buyers. Our individual buyers they're buy, essentially buying a job. So it's what their value is, is what's the likelihood that the income that you're generating is going to transfer to me. That's what an individual buyer is looking at from a value standpoint. From a synergistic buyer standpoint, it's where are my synergies and what does that mean? So we... When we're working with our sellers, especially the larger sellers, we're trying to identify what are the strategic attributes of the company? What would cause this business to be sold at a higher multiple because we're able to identify synergies? And the synergies may be market, you know, geographic market, could be people, could be back room, it could be economies of scale through through various suppliers and customers, cross-selling opportunities. That's what we're that's what we're looking at. And so, what we're trying to do. The de- the reason it's a deal killer is that it's not adequately articulated. That this is why you should buy this company. So, when we're dealing with buyers on the individual side, we're looking at it from the standpoint of: Look, this is how much money you can make. This is how you can pay your debt, and this is the return on investment you will accumulate wealth quicker through owning companies than you will in the stock market. Conversely, we move over to the synergistic buyers. We're talking about here is why the business is worth this to you. And when we start the dialogue between buyer and seller, and we start identifying the synergies, then we can advise our clients and we're able to identify, you know, if this happens, then this should be the premium. So, anyway, the deal killer is that those kinds of things are not adequately articulated to the buyer, and the buyer will will walk if the it there's too much information out there that says you know mitigate your risk buyers are not crazy risk takers that they were a decade ago there's just been you know there's been a recession there's you know there's just different mentality that that you have to be sensitive to number nine. Company specific risks. These are the normal ones. This is called in my world, this is called company specific risks. And we're trying to identify what dependencies of customers, suppliers, employees. You know, for example, you know, if Joe walks out the back door, are you dead in the water? You know, are there any lawsuits? Is there a new competition coming in? Those are we have to be able to identify that. And what happens is, it, especially those that go out of the loan and then show up at our doorstep, they're sitting there saying, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, they, we got into due diligence and then, then it all fell apart. Well, those are the things that we're talking about is that you have to identify what the company is dependent upon and, and offset that with how is the buyer going to mitigate that risk? Is that in purchase price? Is that in structure? What's going to happen? And that's normally where the buzzsaw is, is that they just, the sellers don't know what to do. And so that's how we address it. We have to understand what is the risk to the buyer. So going forward, we understand that, that this is how the buyer is going to look at the business. Next, purchase price allocation. So every sale, there is a document that the IRS uh requires you to complete it's form 8594 the allocation of purchase price the funny thing is and and don't hold me to this one uh I was recently at a seminar that says buyer and seller don't have to agree to it but after you know, 28 years every time it's uh it is a condition of sale so the allocation of purchase price so the buyer and the seller, this affects their respective taxes, okay? So from a buy side, the buyer wants to maximize, and this is just an example, wants to maximize how much of the purchase price is allocated to the tangible assets. And the reason being is that they get the tax benefit of depreciation going forward. Conversely, the seller wants as little as can be attributed to tangible asset. Why? Because they've been doing what the buyer wants to do. They've been taking this depreciation expense and then they're going to get hit with depreciation recapture. And then they're going to be taxed on that. And, that, and that's, like I said at the very beginning, it's a matter of how much are you putting in your pocket, not what is your gross. So the allocation of purchase price always is the buzzsaw. saw. But if you if you happen to go to form eighty five ninety four and look, you, you won't see anything that uh has buyer and seller signing it. So my uh tax accountant friend says, you know, it just runs the risk of the audit. You know, if yeah, you, know, you guys can put whatever you want, and this this is him talking, not me. You can put whatever you want on it, <clears throat> but just be sensitive to that they may audit this allocation and you may have to pay that depreciation recapture if if you minimize it and too much. All right, next one. Stock versus asset. So the buyer and every advisor will want a buyer to the safest bet is an asset sale. There's a stop gap and so any contingent liabilities that follow the stock, you know, there's a there's a, a moat between the buyer and seller. So it essentially it is a it is a sale where the or the seller is just selling assets to the buyer the tangible and intangible assets so if any recourse like any warranty issues or challenges like that stay with the stock and the seller has to handle it conversely the stock the the seller is saying i want to sell the stock because it 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 puts me into a better position from a from a tax standpoint All right so they They, it's just, it's just game for them, and they take everything. I'm going to run my cash down, but you can have everything. And the problem is, like I said, the the biggest issue is contingent liabilities. So often we run into the situation where the seller wants stock sales, buyer wants asset sales, and somehow we have to get to common ground. Where again, you have to recognize that the buyer wants to mitigate the risk. Conversely, the seller wants to maximize the value. How do we get there and we get there through through structure we get there through recognizing the buyer risk that they're taking and accommodating that risk, but finding other ways to maximize value. customer concentration i mean this is a this is a big one seller's customer issues so i'm I'm in the middle of one right now and it's not customer. Concentration it is longevity of customers, so in this case, this guy has and you know, he's like look, all these guys have been with me for thirty years, and he's trying to sell to this happens to be a, an insurance company he's trying to sell to a you know a, a young guy that's thirty thirty five years old, and he's sitting there you know this guy's saying, well what's the likelihood they're going to continue to work with me well that's that's the tough one. So I always you know, we're always talking about customer concentration and that is a huge risk. But now we have to look at the composition of the customer and the likelihood of transfer. It's not just how much of one customer. Now it's the what is the composition of the customer because that obviously affects value. That you have especially when you're talking personal Interaction, seller interaction with the customer—that's a big challenge because the buyer is is not. It's hard for them to embrace that this is just a matter of the service I provide as opposed to the relationship the seller and the customer have. Landlord issues. This uh, this one's a a, is a doozy, and most sellers don't know it. So what happens is that when if you don't own your real estate and you're in your leasing space there is zero motivation for the landlord to take you off of that lease. And this is where the sellers are like, what do you mean? Well, when when I say that, buyer qualifies for the lease, sellers like, all right, I'll I'll make the assignment and I'm going to take a personal guarantee from the buyer, but if but if I go through he defaults, I'm coming after you. And then the sellers like, the risk associated with that is considerable. And, you know, we, we, we talk to our sellers and there's just no motivation for the landlords to do that. So when do we talk to them? Well, once we have a deal, then we can talk about the merits of structuring a a new lease. But I can tell you that nine times out of 10, the, the landlord, there's just no motivation for them to do it. And they, and they won't. Family issues. I'm in the middle of this one too. So in this case, wife wants to sell. Husband doesn't want to sell. Husband is showing up at our doorstep, going through the motions, and and the, and his wife is is under the assumption that that they're getting ready to sell the company. and And I can tell you that this guy has little to no motivation to sell the company. And it's it's something else. So, so the family again. So that's one with with spouses the second one and we we bumped into this a couple of weeks ago where all of a sudden we're going to market this seller hadn't even considered giving it or selling it to his kid and so you know he just he just it didn't even cross his mind why would why would my son in this case want to work this hard like his like his old man did and that that's the guy that was the the exact words the guy said I said, well, I I don't know, but but you definitely want to have that conversation before you get into this process. And so, as as uh, as it as it would be, uh, you know, he, his kid wanted the business. So again, family issues will tend to scuttle deals. So settle those before you get into the sale process. If not, that'll that'll certainly be a deal killer. Leans. Our our standard practice is we run lien searches all before we even get into this because we just find liens. Um and sometimes they're they they do not make a lick of difference because it's been paid off. Someone just forgot to remove the lien. Other times it's like, oh man, I did I had no idea that, that was that, that was there. So what happens is and for those of you who don't know, I mean, typically in an asset sale, you have to provide Clear title to the assets you're selling, and in this case, it's it has to do with awareness. They just didn't know that that it wasn't there, or that it was in place. And so you you just want to know. And and for those of you that are here in Indiana, you just go to the Secretary of State, go to uh, I believe it's online online services, online business services, and then to uh, UCC. Then you can do a, a search on your own. On your own company and see what's there next is the risk and reward and again that's all this it the, the deal killers are about risk the comfort that a buyer has to have in order to buy the company it doesn't matter if they're professional buyers or they're individual buyers there is inherent risk associated with buying a company and the work we do in advance mitigates that we're trying to understand the the buyers or the, the sellers, what the seller's situation is, not only just financially, but emotionally, and what what are going to be the speed bumps that we're going to experience. And so, so as sellers or advisors to sellers, you have to be in a position to advise, understand what it is that you're selling, and understand the risk associated with it, because that that will be the ultimate deal killer. There are too many opportunities for business buyers to park their money elsewhere and get a reasonable return, especially in today's uh, prevailing economic conditions. So helping a buyer, yeah, helping a buyer understand what it is that they are acquiring and how they can pay back and get the return of their investment and on their investment. That is, that is where this risk and reward comes from. Next is, Risk assessment, and these are all basic things that we go through um, in evaluating a company. What I would tell you from an appraisal and exit planning standpoint, I would tell you that we have a self-assessment tool that that we—it's complimentary. There is no cost whatsoever for for you as the business owner or you that want to send it to their to your client. We use what's called the Value builder System, and this is a self-assessment. And the reason we use it, and I, and in full disclosure, I, I sit on their international board. But what, the reason we use it is so you it helps start the discussion, the discussion of these risk characteristics, and it makes a business owner think about. I never looked at my business through the eyes of a of, of a, of a of a buyer, and so, so I would encourage you. And you can go to ValueBuilders.us. Uh, we'll have a link to everything in the uh, in the in the post broadcast email. Certainly, one thing we we absolutely advocate for. All right, I have a couple of questions, or I have one question right now. Um, the question is how to manage expectations of the seller when the letter of intent says one thing, but the purchase agreement infers another. Okay, so what we've done, and we and we started this about 30 years ago, is we engage an escrow attorney. And so buyer submits a letter of intent, seller, we, we negotiate it back. And it's just the framework. I mean, it's not like, like a home where it's a, a binding contract. This is the framework of a deal and what we do is we take that and we give it to we give it to our escrow attorney. Escrow attorney represents no one and they formalize in in legal terms. We then take that document and we give it to the buyer and seller attorney. And so and then they can put put their touches on it. And the reason we do that is historically if it goes to the buyer's attorney, the the the, the attorney undoubtedly undoubtedly will advocate for their buyer and they should and it's all skewed that way if it go then it goes back to the seller and then that that seller's attorney does the same thing so they advocate for their client and it gets skewed their way and the problem we run into is that the only one that makes any money are the attorneys so we're eating up all all proceeds you know the buyers having to to incur additional costs same thing with the seller seller's Eaten into their, their net. And when in fact we use this escrow attorney and it, we have found that it has saved, gosh, at least half half the legal expense. So how do you manage the expectation? First thing is, and, and the reason I share that is because a letter of intent, it, it happens normally when it gets formalized. The the offer comes formalized in the purchase and sale agreement. So that, I hope that answers your question. I mean, we're trying to, um, it should, the framework of the letter of intent should be reasonably consistent with that of the purchase and sale agreement. Okay. Any other questions? I think I'm good. So, uh, next steps. So like I was telling you, um, Value builder assessment, you're welcome to do that. You're, you can email me at any time. One of the beauties of our shop here, I mean, we, we haven't been doing this for 40 years, not having an open shop. So if you have a question or you just want to talk through something, you know, we've got 17 people up here that would be more than happy to, to, to talk through this. And you know, I'll let you know when we have to turn the meter on. And then lastly, um, we have a podcast it's called Defenders of Business Value. Uh, It's we talk about all things value, Uh, what builds value, preserves value, and transfers value. So it seems to be resonating with a a number of folks. So hopefully you can join us on that. We'll get the date of our next session out for next month. I believe it's the 19th. Don't hold me to that. Uh, I had uh, an opportunity to speak at the Butler Disruption Conference. Uh, earlier this month, and we may tailor that. And what the disruption that we talked about are things that disrupt value in a business: divorce, death, disability, and the like. So, and so we're probably going to to do something like that. So, if there's no additional questions, I just want to thank you for your attention. Um, I know your time is valuable and hopefully that uh, you found our time together meaningful. So if you need anything, again, give us a call. We're happy to help. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for joining the Defenders of Business Value podcast. If you're preparing your business for sale, visit LegacyTransitionAdvisors.com or text EXIT to 35893 to begin your journey to maximum saleable value. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to transfer maximum value in your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com. Better yet, subscribe now so you don't miss the future episodes. This program is copyrighted Legacy Transition Advisors, LLC. All rights reserved.